we have been introduced to the main characters except for one, Haman. Once we're introduced to Haman, then the crisis is going to be introduced, or the problem, and then the story deals with that. So chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agite, exalting him and setting his position above that of all the officials who were with him. As a result, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate were bowing and paying homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded. However, Mordecai did not bow, nor did he pay him homage. We are induced to Haman. Haman is an Agagite. This is significant because the Agite, going all the way back to Exodus 16, Israel was coming out of Egypt after their deliverance in the Passover meal and the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. And they were being brought through the wilderness. And about three weeks later, the Amalekites came across them. The Amalekites were a warrior nomadic group who attacked them attacked them wrongfully, unjustified. They, um, and that was when Moses lifted the staff up and gained victory and all that kind of stuff. Later, God decided that the Amalekites needed to be punished for ambushing an innocent, vulnerable, defenseless group of Israelites who had just come out of slavery. But no one was really prepared to, to, to beat them up, so to speak. Joshua had entered the land and had to con- destroy the Canaanites to establish them as a nation. The judges failed miserably to hold the land. Saul finally became the first king. And once the land kind of was stabilized a little bit under Saul, God called Saul in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel to wipe out all the Amalekites because of what they had done to the Israelites. Saul kind of did it. But he didn't kill everybody, especially he did not kill the family of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. As a result, God punished Saul for that and basically took the kingship from him. This sets up a rival, because remember Mordecai is a descendant of the Benjamites. He's actually in the family of Saul, the same family that Saul was. Saul was the son of Kish, and Mordecai is a descendant of Kish's family. This means that there's a family rival, rivalry between the Agites, Haman, and now the Benjamites, Mordecai. All these years later, Saul, who disobeyed God and did not kill the, Agags, uh, the Agites and the Amalekites, now one of his descendants and all the Jews are about ready to be wiped out by them. And so this is just another one of those things where, like, when you disobey God, it ripples into the further generations. And you have no idea how it's going to affect your future generations and descendants as a result of your disobedience. There is a rivalry here between these two men because they come from two different families. One is marked for destruction, Haman. And the other ones, their ancestors failed to do this marked destruction to destroy them. And now there's a rivalry. Now Haman is going to want to kill him. So that's the first thing that we're introduced to with Haman. Then the second thing we're told about Haman was that he was promoted to vice regent. Vice regent is the second most powerful position that you could have in the kingdom. This is what Joseph was promoted to under Pharaoh back in Genesis. In the very beginning of Genesis in the Joseph story. He is vice regent. That means he is 
absolute control, except for what the king would have. But we already know that the king is incredibly passive and easily persuaded by any of his advisors. So this means that Haman has all the power that he wants to do whatever he wants, and he's going to earn a new enemy, and it's Mordecai. Now, one of the things that's required is that you were to bow down and honor the people who are over you in authority. Everybody is commanded to bow down to Haman, and this sets up the problem. Verse 3, Then the servants of the king who were at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you violating the king's commandment? And after they were, had spoken to him day after day without his paying any attention to them, they informed Haman to see whether this attitude on Mordecai's part would be permitted. Furthermore, he had disclosed to them he was a Jew. He refuses to bow down to Haman. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. We don't know why. There's nothing here in the Bible that is ever provided or ever pro- prohibited you bowing down to other people. Bowing down and honoring somebody is completely different than bowing down and worshiping somebody. In the same way that we don't bow down and honor people here in America, but we do shake hands, or we may give them great respect. And that's kind of the same idea a little bit. Not exactly. Shaking hands is more of an equal. But if you go over to Japan or China, they bow down a lot to each other. But they just slightly bow. There's no this idea of prostrating himself on the floor. Anybody's being required to do that. Nothing here suggests this is worship because nobody would be worshiping Haman and this culture. Nothing in the Bible forbids bowing down to somebody in respect or in honor. So there's nothing that is unbiblical about this, yet Mordecai refuses to do it. And we're never told his motives. It could be that he simply doesn't like Haman as an Agite because of their family tradition, and he refuses to honor them in some kind of a way. The other officials keep nagging him about this over and over. Why don't you bow down? Why don't you bow down? Why don't you bow down? And he completely ignores them. He doesn't even give them an answer anything. Well, that's not politically savvy. They then come against him. So then they go to Haman and say, Hey, Haman, you're going to do something about this? This guy's challenging your authority. You're going to do something about this? It's like a bunch of frat boys who don't like somebody in the club has gotten dishonored. And they want to make sure that it's manned up against them. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing or paying homage to him, he was filled with rage. But the thought of striking out against Mordecai alone was repugnant to him, for he had been informed of the identity of Mordecai's people, who were Jewish. So Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, that is, the people of Mordecai, who were in the kingdom of Asherus. This is incredibly shallow. Is at this point that we are introduced to the fact that Haman has a very, very low self-esteem and a tender ego. And we know that because, yes, when people that you care about like insult you or reject you or whatever, that hurts. And that, that, that hurts and that um, affects your emotions and all that kind of stuff. But when random people insult you or random people refuse to like you and that enrages you, or depresses you, there's a sense then that this is a low self-esteem. Now, we all feel this to a certain degree. 
But this is where filtering comes into process. And this is where we take the time and we're like, okay, I'm feeling those emotions. This random person at McDonald's just told me, chewed me out and yelled at me and screamed at me for no reason. And that hurt my feelings and that affected me emotionally. But you know what? I don't know them. They don't know me. I have a wife and kids who love me. I have other family members. I have friends that love me. They don't know anything about me. Maybe they were having a bad day. I'm not going to take this personally, and I'm going to kind of just pray about it and move on and be okay. That's called filtering. If you can't do that, then there's something wrong. And the fact that not only can he not filter and process that, but it enrages him and he stays with it, and it's not good enough for him to just strike out against Mordecai, but he has to wipe out the entire people group that Mordecai belongs to, that's just downright evil. That is an incredibly low self-esteem that he can't handle that there's this person out there that doesn't like him, and he needs to destroy that person and destroy even more than just that person in order to feel good about himself. And that's an incredibly low self-esteem here. This also shows how completely irrational he is. Absolutely irrational. Verse 7. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asherus' reign, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman in order to determine a day and a month. It turned out to be the twelfth month that is the month of Adar. During the same month as Passover, Passover is the month of Nisan that celebrates the deliverance from Egypt through the deliverance of God. He's going to devise a plan to wipe them all out, which means Passover is not going to be a joyous celebration for the Jews this year because they're going to just be thinking about the fact that they're going to be exterminated in the next month. And in order to determine the date, he rolls the dice, which is the word pure. He's going to roll the dice in order to pick this date. That's absolutely random and irrational. Everything about this man is absolutely ruled by a low self-esteem, fear, anger, and a lack of reason. This is what's ruling him right now. And this is what's determining everything. The question is, can someone truly this irrational with this much low self-esteem truly unleash such a great evil against somebody? Do they really have that ability? And that's what we're going to find out. Though determined by lot, the day chosen seems maliciously ironical. The number 13 was considered unlucky by the Persians and the Babylonians, while the 13th day of the first month, the day on which the edict decreeing the Jews' destruction was dispatched, is the day preceding Passover, the commemoration of the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This is considered an unlucky number even way back then, in a lot of different ways. Verse 8, Then King Haman said to King Asherish, There is a particular people that is dispersed and spread among the inhabitants throughout all the providences of your kingdom, whose laws differ from those of all the peoples. Furthermore, they do not observe the king's laws. It is not appropriate for the king to provide a haven for them. If the king is so inclined, let an edict be issued to destroy them. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to be conveyed to the king's treasuries for the officials who carry out this business. Now he comes along and he now presents this. Notice that he does not mention the name of this people group. 
Nowhere as presenting this to the king does he ever mention the name of the people group. First, he presents them as just this people group, completely anonymous, not going to tell you who they are. And he describes the Jews as being scattered throughout the empire. By describing as being scattered throughout the empire, he makes it sound like that they are an enemy that is lurking behind every single corner, that every single city has been infiltrated, every single institution has been infiltrated by these people, like they have engineered and masterminded this infiltration. All by itself, you would say, oh, they're just kind of scattered everywhere, but by the fact that he stacks everything up. Now, technically, that's true of every people group. Remember when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came, they scattered everybody they conquered. So that technically is a description of almost everybody in the Persian Empire. The second thing is he describes as having customs or laws or traditions that are different from everybody else. Well, technically that applies to everybody else too. You're like, you know, there's this people group somewhere out there in the world that has a completely different tradition or customs or laws than we do. Yeah, there are. There's lots of people. That doesn't make them inherently bad. And the third thing is that now he goes straight out and lies about them. The first two things, he just words it in such a way that it sounds malicious that these people group are doing this. The third thing, he just straight out and says, they do not obey your laws. They do not respect your authority. And there is no evidence for that whatsoever anywhere in the text. This is, he's intentionally twisted, left things out, and manipulated the information and presented it in such a tone that he's hoping for a response of his choosing. Verse 10, So the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agite, who was hostile towards the Jews. And the king replied to Haman, Keep your money and do with those people whatever you wish. This is absolute Ignorance and laziness that is being manipulated now for absolute evil. This king does not investigate. He, okay, this, we're talking about the wiping out of an entire people group. We're talking about genocide. You would think that if somebody came into your palace and was promoting genocide, even though you're not a very moral person, genocide is a very big commitment to killing and evil and all that kind of stuff. It's usually, like, we usually think of genocide as one of the most top evils that anybody could ever do. You think he would probe with more questions. Who are these people? Where do they live? How numerous are they? What makes them so evil? But he asks no questions. He basically says, okay. And then not only that, he's too lazy to actually make this law himself. He just takes his signet ring and throws it to Haman and says, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want that the ruler over the biggest, most powerful empire in the entire world would just be too lazy and too ignorant and too nonchalant and callous to just throw his signet ring to somebody and say, do whatever you want, shows you how evil he really is. Haman is pure evil in his intentions to do harm to people based on irrational reasons. But the king is evil by his apathy and callousness and his lack of even caring. And together, they're a horribly dangerous pair. They're a horribly dangerous pair. And so now this evil is unleashed. 
And you would expect more from government leaders in this kind of a sense. Verse 12. So the royal scribes were summoned in the first month on the 13th day of the month. And everything Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and governors who were in every providence to the officials of every people providence by providence according to the script the people by people according to its language and the name of king asherus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring letters were sent by the runners to all the king's provinces stating that they should destroy kill annihilate all the jews from youth to elderly both women and children on a particular day namely the 13th day of the 12th month that is the month of adar and to loot and plunder their possessions a copy of this edict was to be presented as law throughout every providence, and it was to be made known to all the inhabitants so that they would be prepared for this day. The messengers scurried forth with the king's order, and the edict was issued in Susa, the citadel, while the king of Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Susa was in uproar. So they give this edict, and this is thorough. This is a law that is sent out to all 127 providences from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to India, commanding every single official to not only allow all citizens in their districts, but also join them in the absolute hunting and extermination of every single Jew, regardless of gender, age, or anything, and that they exterminate them all. Not only are they exterminate them all, they are to loot and take everything from them. This is a complete reversal of the Exodus. And the month of the Passover, where Israel was freed from the destruction that Egypt was wreaking on them and given permission to take everything from Egypt because Egypt owed them about 200 years of payment for slavery. Now, in that same month that they'd be celebrating that, everything is being reversed on them. They're going to be exterminated and they're going to be looted themselves. Then, as a result, notice the contrast at the very end. The king goes back to drinking and celebrating, and everybody in the city is freaked out. Everybody's freaked out. All he really wants to do is just drink and party and be entertained and fulfill his passions and all that kind of stuff. That's all he really cares about, and this is the kind of man that is ruling over the entire empire. One of the points is, I think you've begun to realize that as we've been going through all these books, God does not look at the government of Israel very favorably. Never does he really ever say good things about this government. They're horribly corrupt and evil, and they never have their people's interest in mind. When we get to the Babylonians, they're portrayed in the same way. And then all the prophecies of the beast coming out of the sea, it's portrayed that these governments seek power, and they're not interested in their people, and they're only interested in their own good and their own provision. And then we see this again with the Persians. And then the prophets also point to the fact that the governments are not going to change. They're going to be no different in any kind of way as we go throughout history. And it's very interesting, as you go through the First Testament, the First Testament basically says, do not trust your governments. Do not look to them as your saviors. People with this much power do not serve your best interests. They're not looking out for you. Even people without power are not always seeking out your best interests. Without the Holy Spirit, we are selfish. Even with the Holy Spirit, we're trying so hard not to be selfish. Without the Holy Spirit, we are interested. Every thought that you have 
Every action that you do and every goal that you pursue is about your own benefit. Okay, even when you help other people, yes, there are people who are humanitarians and they don't have the Holy Spirit, but they're usually motivated by a brokenness or they're motivated by a desire to look good or motivated by to get a hit of feeling good because they've helped other people. Even though they're doing good things and even though they might be doing it for the right reasons in some ways, we know that deep down inside there's usually undercurrents. We know that some people have a savior complex because of the home that they grew up in and everything was always chaos and falling apart and now they feel this need to fix things, to, to make things right for them in their own life, what they had in their childhood. Or that they just want to feel good because other people like that they're helping them. There's so many different things here. And the only way that your actions and your thoughts and your goals can be selfless is when the Holy Spirit begins to change you. And even then we battle with the flesh on a daily basis on that kind of stuff. Then give somebody absolute power or a lot of power or semi a lot of power and they're just going to use that for their own benefit. And they're going to promote their interests. And this is the way that God has portrayed it. Remember, all the First Testament is doing is visually, historically unpacking for you for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or James, all man's desire always leads to sin and always leads to death. And Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to humanity but leads to destruction and death. The First Testament constantly tells you not to trust people with power. And I don't mean you can't trust them at all. There's different levels. Like, the Bible's not teaching you not to trust anybody. That would be a horribly lonely life and miserable. But this idea that they have my ultimate good in mind, that they're serving me, that they're going to save me, that they're going to fix my problems somehow, that kind of trust you're not to trust them in. And they don't have that. And and, and, and they can't please everybody. We've already seen this in this election. Even right now, lots of people are already beginning to turn against Biden who voted for Biden because now that he's pushing some things for they're like, wait a minute, I didn't want that. Well, no, because he can't make everybody happy. Trump can't make everybody happy. Nobody can make everybody happy. It's impossible. And so they can't serve everybody's best interests. And that's the problem with governments. And you're naive to trust in this way. However... You need to also put that on the other side of the coin of the New Testament. The New Testament says to honor your government, though, and to respect them, and to pray for them, and to obey them unless they tell you to go absolutely contrary to the will of God in some kind of a sense. This is what it means to be a Christian today. To be a Christian with the Holy Spirit it means you that you do not trust your governments to save you, to serve your best interests. They are not going to fix you in your life in any kind of a way. Only Jesus can do that. However, you are not to act like the world. You're not to slander them. You're not to bash them. You are to pray for them. You are you're to respect them and honor them and that kind of stuff. And this is the first testament and the second testament. The first testament doesn't really speak at all to how to treat the governments, except for just the examples that we saw with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and that kind of stuff. And you saw them being respectful. They did not trust Nebuchadnezzar, but they respected him. And they treated him with love, and they witnessed to him. And it's the same thing that the New Testament is calling us to. And so that's the tension. 
The tension is I'm to treat them with respect and I'm to honor them, but I'm not to trust them as my savior and the one that will fix me and make everything great again. And only Christ gives me the ability to do that. Because if I only had my government, then I'm either going to be tempted to trust them to fix everything or be horribly depressed and fatalistic when I realize that they can't. And only with Christ can I then say, okay, but if they can't fix it and make things great again, that's okay. Because we have a Savior that is far greater than any government. But at the same time, when you see your government failing you over and over again, the natural human tendency is to be angry and, and to lash out against them. But it's only in prayer and when we go to the Holy Spirit and surrender to Christ, then we can treat them with love and respect. And, and this is the tension that we're held to. And to go to the trusting extreme or to go into the anger lashing out extreme, neither one is biblical. And this is the picture that the Bible keeps setting up over and over and over again. All governments are, are led by men and women who are also sinners, desperately in need of Jesus, who follow their hearts. And until we surrender to Christ, nothing's going to change. And you see this. Every time they make a decision, everything is upheaved and overturned. And people are freaking out, and they're all going to be wiped out and killed instantaneously. 